Would you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, and our text this morning will be verses 1 through 7. I always look forward to the new year because I like to think about how we can face the new year through the lens of Scripture. And this text certainly helps us with that. What do you expect in the new year for yourself, for your family, for your church, or even for your your nation, your town? As you look at the new year, what what goals do you have? Do you make resolutions? Have predictions? I think naturally we think of these things. Just as we approach a Monday, and we think about a Monday as being the fresh start for the week, you think of the new year as a fresh start to something new. And it's a time when we reflect upon the previous year and look forward to new goals for the next year. At least I, I do. And thankfully, as we do think through and reflect upon the previous year, knowing that we have not arrived yet, we have some things to work on. Scripture is our inerrant, infallible, and our sufficient guide to answer these questions and to help us. And Second Peter is especially appropriate because it teaches us how things really are in the world that we live in and how things will be until Christ returns. But as you read 2 Peter, you might think that it's just full of gloomy news of a depraved world that hates Christians. And it certainly does paint the picture of a depraved, gloomy world in some sense. But rather, actually, we should see 2 Peter as a book that gives us great hope of Christ's return and how we are to live until he does return. In short, 2 Peter was written much like 1 Peter to persecuted Christians that were not only dealing with the hostile world, but they were inundated with false teachers. They were teaching heresies and false doctrines. And so it's a relevant story or a relevant epistle for us this morning because as we look around at our world, our world's a mess. We look at the moral norms of our society. Our world's a mess. We see that many that would proclaim Christ today proclaim false doctrines, false heresies. In many ways, you could say that those that profess Christ are a mess as well. And so 2 Peter is a relevant book for us to look at on this first day of the new year. So let us hear the word of God. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly." This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. I want to point out three things this morning in this, is that in this text we see a call for revival. We see a call for remembrance. 
And then we see a call for righteousness. Peter begins by saying this is his second letter that he's written. Presumably, he's referring to his first letter that he has written to the persecuted churches. And now he's writing a second letter to them. He is nearing his own death at this point. And he begins the letter with a term of endearment to call his, these that are receiving the letter his beloved. Those that he cares for. He's writing to the church. He's writing to those that have professed Christ, that know Christ. He's writing to you and I. He's writing to us right now. And so we must ask this question, what would our elder brother Peter want to tell us before he dies? What would the man that walked closest with Christ, that became the foremost as he approaches the end of his life and has lived a faithful life to the end, that has experienced the ups and downs of walking with Christ in life, what would he want to say to us? Well, this is what he wants to do, is he wants to stir us up to revival. He says this, in both of them, those are his letters, in both of them, I am stirring up That is, I am trying to wake you up. I am trying to stimulate us, he says, to a sincere mind. That is a pure and unmixed mind, a mind with no hidden motives. A pure mind, a sincere mind. He's stirring us up to a pure mind. What we have to notice about that is this. Peter is wanting to stir up something that is already there. He's not saying that Christians do not already have a pure mind. Because we know that Scripture tells us that we have a new mind in Christ. He's not saying that he wants to instill something new to the church. He's wanting to stir up, to wake up that which is already there. And I think this is an important connection. The church already has a sincere mind. He just wants to wake it up. It's gotten foggy. In fact, this is the point of the letter. You see in chapter 1, he writes something very similar in verse 12 where he writes this, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Listen to what he says. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So if you think about the life of Peter, Peter proclaims the gospel. He sees people saved. He works in their lives as a means of sanctification to help them along in their Christian journey. And he's got one last thing to say before he dies. And what is it that he wants to say? He wants to remind us of what was first given to us in the gospel. He wants to wake us up. This is a call to revival. Peter is wanting to see, before he dies, a revival in the church. Oftentimes when we think of revival, we think of a lot of people being saved. That's really the result of a revival. You revive that which is already alive. He's wanting to stir up minds that are already been made pure. What he's saying to us is he wants to revive us. And so you think about this. Peter is the instrument of the Holy Spirit to bring about God's Word. So Peter is writing God's Word that they may read it, they may respond to it, 
They may study it, and they may follow its instructions. That is revival. When the church wakes up to the Word of God and responds to the Word of God, we've entered into revival. And that's what he is stirring us up to. He is speaking to the church that they may be awakened. They are Christians. They have sincere minds, but maybe they have become dull. Maybe they have forgotten some fundamental truths. So he wants to stir them up by way of reminder. Specifically, he is going to take them to the word of God. There's a couple things I think we should think about. Revival comes through and in the church. And it is by the word of God. Revival does not happen apart from the word of God. Revival does not happen outside of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching and proclamation of the word of God. That is the means that God uses to waken the church is the proclamation of His Word. Because in the proclamation of His Word, the Holy Spirit works through it. Sure, we want something extraordinary and supernatural to take place outside of us, but the supernatural extraordinary actually takes place through God's Word that He has given us. And it happens in the local church. That's where revival takes place. It takes place inside of a local church. If I was to ask you, and let me ask you this, not way as, a, as a question of guilt, but rather just as we are reflecting on 2022 and looking into 2023, If I was to ask you this question, how many of you want to see revival in our land? I don't don't think anyone would hesitate to raise their hands. I don't think any of us would, would, would deny that we desire to see revival. But as soon as we say, I would love to see revival in our land. We have just placed ourselves under the magnifying glass of God's word. You see, revival will not come apart from the church dedicating itself to the word of God. Revival won't happen by other means, because those are the means that God uses. So why do we need to heed this and make this call for revival necessary? Let me give you a few reasons. The first reason is this, is we we love Christ. We love Christ, and if we love Christ, we want to see Christ exalted in all things. And so because we say we love Christ, then we want to see Christ exalted in our lives, that we would be awake that we would be bright-eyed to the glories of the gospel and the majesty of God. That our love for Christ would consume us. There's another reason we should take this seriously. We love Christ, but we also love ourselves. Run with that. Christ tells us to put these things, the Word, in place because it's bad for us or because it's good for us and it brings Him glory. So if we want to see revival, not only do we do it because we love Christ, But we we do it because we also love ourselves because it's actually good for us to consume God's Word. It's good for us to put Christ's Word first. This is important because we see that this happens again in the church. The Word of God. Not only just the preaching of the Word of God, but how we study the Word of God. 
there's a tendency in the church today of doing lots of Bible studies and groups, but the tendency has not moved towards doing those things in the church, but rather outside of the church. Peter is writing to the church to embrace God's word in the study of it. If we want to see revival, we need to be dedicated to the study of the word of God. And we cannot expect a revival apart from the church and the word working together. And because we do love ourselves, you do love yourself. This is good for us. It's actually part of our transformation. It's part of our sanctification. It's part of helping us through this life. You think about it like this is when we say that and we admit we love ourselves, but we do things counter to God's word and expect to get the same results. We're actually saying God does not know what's best for us. Imagine asking God to heal you of some affliction, but not changing anything that actually caused the affliction. It would be kind of like as you approach a new eating regimen in the, the new year, and you're about ready to enjoy something that you know is bad for you, and you say, Lord, bless this food and make it like broccoli. Uh, that's the same thing we do when we look at other means for growing in the faith outside of what God has prescribed for us. It's like asking God to turn a donut into a piece of broccoli. We need to heed the call to revival that Peter gives us because not only do we love Christ and we love ourselves, but we love our lost loved ones. All of us have loved ones that do not know Christ. And our heart yearns for them to respond to the gospel, doesn't it? Could it be that with revival in the life of the church, that the revival that takes place in our life actually flows out of our life to our, love, our lost loved ones? What, what do I mean by that? We... Our lost loved ones are, are watching us. When we tell them that we profess Christ and how great it is to be a Christian, they're actually looking at you and asking, do they really mean that, though? They say how great it is to be part of a family of God. But is that really the priority in their life? If our lost loved ones see church as something that we do when nothing else gets in the way, what will they think about what we really think about our faith? Will they see it as important to us? No, they'll see it as something that we do as long as nothing else gets in the way of it. And then we go and tell them how great it is to be a Christian. Will they really believe that we believe that? What they actually see is that we value individualization. And that that's more important to us than being part of a body of Christ, which actually only encourages them to be what? Individuals apart from the body of Christ. We also need to heed the call for revival where we waken up to the Word of God in this church. For this fourth reason, false teachers are constantly bombarding us. In chapter 2, in verse 1, Peter writes this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon them swift 
destruction. There are false teachers amongst us. And it's so prevalent today because you can just turn on the TV and be exposed to someone that might be using Scripture, but actually he, he, he's not orthodox in his faith. Some of the largest so-called churches in America promote destructive heresies. They're not historically orthodox, but they're massively influential. We need to be awakened up to the Word of God because there are false teachers. And here's the thing about false teachers. False teachers do not announce themselves. False teachers don't walk into your living room through some sort of media source and say, here I am, I'm going to spout destructive heresies that will actually damn your soul. They don't typically announce themselves like that. Now, how do you get a false teacher? You give an unbeliever a Bible. And you tell them to go preach. And there's a specific place for guarding against wolves. Did you know that? If wolves are the false teachers, there's a specific place that God himself has designed to protect against fierce wolves. And it's not YouTube. It's not social media. It's not our favorite personality preacher that is to guard you against a false wolf. It's actually your local church that you've covenanted with. Acts chapter 20 says this in verse 28. Paul writes this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul specifically tasked the elders of the church to be on guard, to watch out for wolves, and equip the church with the scriptural knowledge that they may be on guard against wolves. So why are we called, why do we need to pay the heed to revival? Why does Peter want to stir us up? Well, we, we love Christ, we love ourselves, we love our lost loved ones, and because there is a plethora of false teachers out there. The second thing Peter wants to do is have a call to remembrance. He says, I'm stirring you up up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Reminder is something you've already heard, something you already know, but you may need to be reminded of it. I know that I need to take out the trash, but sometimes I need to be reminded that it's there, something I already know. A way of reminder is something you know. It's something you've already heard. And in verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is a call to remembrance. A call to remembrance is the means for our revival. He says you should remember the predictions. And the word predictions is in what we call a perfect tense. Here's what a perfect tense is. Perfect tense is something that has happened in the past but has continuing or abiding relevance for today. So something that has taken place, something that was given in the past, Peter is saying it is right now relevant for you. Specifically, this is what it means, what Peter is saying. What was given in the Scriptures in the past, and because he's going to mention the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles, he's saying that which was given in the present, uh, during Peter's time, is going to have 
ongoing and continuing relevance for your life. Let's just put it this way. What Isaiah wrote has relevance for you right now. What was written in Habakkuk is still important and vital to your life right now. What Paul wrote to the church of Rome is valuable, is vital, and is essential and foundational for your life right now. Let's just put it this way. Everything in your Bible is valuable, is relevant, and is useful for your life right now. It it has ongoing significance. Not just in the first century. Not just when Moses wrote out the first five books of the Bible. But all time, Scripture has relevance for your life. There's not a part of it that's not important. He's saying that we need to remember what was written in Scripture because remembering what is in Scripture is vital to our life. So that is the Bible. Plain and simple. He's saying this. Remember what the Bible said. And he's going to get specific about this. And in this case here, specifically, he's saying, remember that the Bible tells us Christ is going to return and people are going to deny that He's going to return. That's what He wants to remind us of. Is that the Bible tells us that Christ will return and that people are going to deny that. Why do we need to be stirred up to remembrance? We have a tendency to forget We have a tendency to forget about what we know. We might say it's a result of the fall. We might say because of the fall, our brains have been affected by sin and we forget things, we lose attention, we have short attention spans because of sin. And so we need a reminder. There are some things that the the preacher must continually hit on over and over again. As John Trapp said, is that they just need to keep they just need to keep hammering those same truths over and over again without stopping. We have a tendency to forget, but we also have a tendency to live as if the Bible wasn't relevant. And specifically here, the context is remembering that Christ is going to return. We have a greater tendency to live as if Christ is not going to return. You think about it. Would you approach the day differently today if you knew tomorrow Christ was returning? You know what Luther said? And I'm probably wearing this quote out, but it's so important for us. When Luther was asked if tomorrow was the end of the world, what would you do? He said, I would go plant a tree. Luther would just continue living as he had been for God's glory. He was going to continue with the mission that God had given him. But we often live as if Christ is not returning. And sometimes we also not only forget, but live as if Christ is not returning. But don't we also sometimes go through seasons of neglect of God's word? We go through those ups and downs. Calvin says this, For the sloth of the flesh smothers the truth once received. Pretty poignant quote by Calvin to say that. He says our our laziness just kind of smothers the word of God. Here's the thing, is that we cannot afford to neglect the Word. Because as soon as we start to neglect the Word of God, do we move forward in our sanctification process, or do we begin to slip back into old tendencies? So this is a call to remembrance. This is a call to remember the Scriptures. And it says of their predictions, to remember the predictions of the prophets and remember the predictions of the Lord that were given then through 
the apostles. And what was these predictions? Verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So what is the prediction? That scoffers will come. What is a scoffer? A scoffer is one that makes fun of you or ridicules, and specifically they're ridiculing the return of Christ. And it says this is that they follow their own evil desires. Following one's own evil desires is the mark of the last days. Let me ask you, when did the last days begin? When Christ ascended. Peter, John, Paul all say the same thing. We are in those last days. We have been in those last days now for 2,000 plus years. We are right now in the end days. You think about what Jude 18 says. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Jude says the same thing that Peter says. If you read 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says the same thing to Timothy that Peter says. If you read 1 Thessalonians, Paul says the same thing to the church of Thessalonica that Peter says, that Christ also says. They all combine one common thing about the end days. There will be mocking, and people will follow their own sinful desires. That's the sign of the end times. When do we see that? We see it now, and we have been seeing it for 2,000 years. There's never been a point in history where people did not follow their own sinful desires. There's never been a point where people did not mock the return of Christ. So what does that mean for us? It means this. This is a constant for us. This is an axiomatic truth. This is a reality of our life. Is this, is that Christ is going to return and people are going to deny it. People are going to mock it. People are going to ridicule the return of Christ. That means this is part of our reality of life as we live right now. It's part of life, in other words. That's what we experience. And that's what we will experience until Christ returns. So Peter's telling us what really is, what life is really like. He's not sugarcoating it. He's telling us that this is what is part of life. Now their primary target that they're mocking, you'll see that, is in verse 4. This is how they mock. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So why do they, why do they specifically mock the return of Christ? Why is the main target the return of Christ? I'll tell you why. Because if I deny the return of Christ, I deny that there's a future judgment awaiting me. And if I deny a future judgment that's awaiting me, that means I can live any way I want with no fear of facing a judge one day. It's their way of coping with what they know in their heart. And so what gives them the greatest fear is the very thing that they deny and mock. Notice what they say. Nothing's happened yet. Nothing's happened. Things have just kind of been going on the same way. And we oftentimes talk about the economy, how it's a cycle. It's cyclical. That's kind of what they're saying about the way the world goes. It's just, it's just kind of moving on. It's just kind of the same things over and over again. I'm not going to fear a judgment. Where is this judgment that you talk about? Now think of it this way. In verse 4 could be summed up this, is when the, when the cat's away, the mice come out and play. And that's how they approach life. There's no consequences for whatever I do. There's no, no, there, I won't ever have to 
face justice for how I've lived my life? Where is this coming of Christ? Look at verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Now Peter's going to say, this is how they mock us. But here's where they go wrong. He's going to show us why their statement, where is this coming? Maybe you've faced that yourself. Where is this promise of this coming? Peter's going to show us why that that is such a fallacious, foolish statement. He says, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. What's his point? They ignore the fact of creation. They ignore the fact of what can be commonly known. This is the characteristic of this group, is that they reject what is right in front of their faiths. They deliberately disregard truth. They deliberately reject the fact that they were created And because they were created, that means that God did what? He intervened in human history. God did something. The very thing that they say that all things just happen. Well, the fact that you are here means this, that God created you. The fact that we're we're attached to this earth means that God created it. Do you ever wonder why what is obviously true is just rejected by so many in the world right when it's right in front of their face? What is it that they, that they reject? They reject that God created the world. Paul writes of something similar. He says this in chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That means that they know the truth, but what do they do to the truth? They suppress it. And Paul tells us what, they, what, what truth is that they can know. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What is plain to them, they simply deny. And Peter is saying... They overlook the fact when they say that God is doing nothing, that actually God, by just bringing everything into existence, did something. They reject creation. They suppress the truth of creation. Creation itself is a testimony to the fact that God intervenes in human history. God did not have to create mankind and further, mankind did, just, did not just happen. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, I want you to notice these words, without form and void. It means this, that the created substance that God brought about into existence was not able to be inhabited. It was uninhabitable. In order for it to become... How do you say that? Thank you. In order for people to live here, God had to do something. When God created the heavens and the earth, you couldn't live there. It was without form. It was, it was void. It was full of darkness. But in his creation of all things, he makes them so that we may live in them. You see, a denial of creation denies a creator that has authority over your life. 
Yet creation is obvious. It's written in our hearts. It's funny to me how many Christians do not believe that a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3 is absolutely bedrock foundational to your faith. It's actually hard to find a seminary these days that in their statement of faith hold to a literal account of creation. It's absolutely bedrock. And one of the signs of the last days is a denial that God created. But there's something else that they deny. They deny that God has actually not only intervened by creating you and making a world habitable for, habitable for you, but then also that God judged that world. You know, look at this, verse 6. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's speaking of the flood. He's speaking of a worldwide flood where God flooded the world in judgment. The flood is evidence that God actually intervenes in the world. That God will, in fact, judge the world. That if God says, I'm going to judge the world, that God will judge the world. That God has done something. Now, why did God bring about the flood? I want you to hear Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, and have in your mind what Peter has written in 2 Peter. He says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In the last days, there will be scoffers coming with scoffing, and they will follow their own sinful desires. Where all the intentions of their heart are evil intentions. Pete Peter's saying the same thing that Moses wrote down. Verse 6 of Genesis says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God brings judgment upon the land that he created, that he brought about, when only the intentions of the heart was upon evil. That mark of the last days following evil desires, sinful desires, is the same reason that God brought about the flood. So they deny creation. They deny a past judgment. But they also deny a future judgment. You see this in verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God flooded the world. It was a worldwide flood. It wasn't a local flood. It was a worldwide catastrophic flood that God brought about in judgment. And then he promised, I'll never flood the world again but he will judge it with fire. This is speaking of a future judgment. And those that reject God's word, those that mock God's word, not only do they reject and mock the idea of a past judgment, they overlook it, which means they deliberately ignore what can be known. They also reject a future judgment. They reject the fact that there is a coming day when Christ will judge the earth. But what we should note here is there's a coming day of destruction of the ungodly. Verse 7 specifically says that, that in that day of judgment, there will be a destruction of the ungodly. There's two things I want us to note about that is this, is there is a consequence for sin. But more importantly, there's a consequence for rejecting Christ, and that is a destruction of the godly. That is eternal hell. That's the reality. 
that for those that reject Christ, what is awaiting for them is a destruction. What is awaiting for them is an eternal hell, separated from the mercy, love, and grace of God. But here's the beauty of and the hope of the gospel, that by grace, through faith, in Christ, we move from ungodly to godly. We move from unrighteous to righteous. We move from selfish to selfless, to, from unregenerate to regenerate, from following our sinful desires to being a slave to righteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is the hope of the gospel, that we move from sinner to saint. Notice what Paul, Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has been granted to us all, that is grace, things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We've escaped following the sinful desires of the world by God's grace and by God's grace alone. So what is the constant that we're going to face in this world? The constant is that there are going to be those that mock the return of Christ. This is why Peter's calling for a revival. You might think this, I haven't really received mocking of my faith. I've never had anyone mock my faith. Yes, you have. doesn't matter if it's on a TV show that mocks the Christian and glorifies the sinner. It doesn't matter if it's a meme on social media that makes fun of you. The world has mocked you. When the leader of the most powerful nation in the entire world invites men dressed as women to its state capital to sign sinful laws and celebrate those sinful laws, you have been mocked. When laws are passed to murder the unborn, you have been mocked. Creation has been mocked. Past judgment has been mocked. Future judgment has been mocked. We have been mocked. We have been ridiculed against. We have been scoffed at, at the highest level. And that these are facts and a reality should drive us all the way back to the beginning of where we began in verses 1. We need to be stirred up to remembrance of God's Word. We need to be awake during this time. So what, so what do we do? What, what do we do? Do we start a political campaign? Start a protest movement? Start a civil war? Well, listen to what Peter, the man about to be executed by a wicked, sinful government, says to us. Listen to what the man on his deathbed says. Listen to the man that was chastised by Christ for cutting off a person's ear when they attacked Christ. Listen to what this guy says. Hear the word of God through Peter. This is what he says we do in that, in that type of society. He says this, verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What Peter's calling the church to is to righteousness. He's calling the church to be the church. He says in verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What is the word of God calling you to do in this new year? What is he calling us to? 
in this new year as a church, nothing short of revival. He's calling us to revival. It's funny, in almost every end-time passage in the Bible, there's one common theme. theme. It's this, very simply. Things get bad, but you, by God's grace, stay faithful. That's what you do. Stay true to the Word. Live as if Christ is coming. And so what is our goal this new year? It's revival. We want to see God bring revival to our hearts. And that will not happen apart from the Word of God. That will not happen apart from the Spirit working through the proclaimed Word of God in the church. Let me give you a couple practical things. And I know I'm running long, but it's a new year. Dedicate yourself to your covenant with the church. If you've covenanted with this church, dedicate yourself to that covenant. In this coming year, this is the second thing, make communion a priority. Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Make it a priority in your life. And here's why. It's our visible reminder of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us, And it's a reminder that He will come again. It's a reminder of how we ought to live in this world. How do we do that? How do we we dedicate ourselves to it? Well, it's the last Sunday of every month. We prepare our heart and mind, not right before it, but as it comes beforehand. Also, I want you to reflect on this question. Remember the question I asked, would any of us hesitate to say that we want and desire revival? Reflect on this question then. Are the things I want in my personal life as a Christian and the things I want for my church, are they matching my life and decisions and priorities? And if the answer is no, then what do we need to do? We need to reevaluate our priorities and our decisions. And then finally, this is not a do more sermon. This is not a pick yourself up by your bootstraps sermon. This is to say also, we can do nothing apart from God's grace. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Our, Our desire then is to go to Christ and say, we are helpless apart from you. And we know what your word calls us to do, but we can't do it apart from your grace. We know how you want us to live, but we can't do it without you helping us. That must be our prayer this new year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that sets us free, that sets us free from unrighteousness to righteousness because of the righteousness of Christ. We depend upon your grace. We are in need of your grace. And so we pray that by your help, Father, you will guide us this coming new year to consider our priorities and the decisions we make. And we pray that you would bring revival to this church here, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.